Our Father, as we bow before the cross, I pray that you will allow us to see with spiritual eyes not only its power, but its passion, the love and the mercy that flow through the wounds and the blood of Christ. It's not a pretty picture, the cross, but beyond it is hope and life and victory. And it's because of that cross this day that we can call you Father. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. We pray in the wonderful name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. He was an old man alone in a cave. His companions had all passed on. He was the last of an extraordinary group of people. So it's only natural to reminisce in those later years as you think about departed friends and maybe consider the amazing experience that you shared together. And some say the Apostle John was 90 years old when he took quill in hand to pen his little epistle that we find at the end of the New Testament called 1 John. His thoughts went back to that first coming of Christ and he starts out his letter by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we saw him saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life, and we proclaim him to you. The life appeared, and we have seen him. And now testify and proclaim to you that he is eternal life, this one who was with the Father and appeared to us. We proclaim this to you so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. An amazing thing to see and touch and hear the eternal life of God sent down in human form. As John reflected on the first coming of Christ, he quickly shifts his focus to ponder the second. Later on in his epistle with these words, continue in Christ, dear children, so that when he appears a second time, we might be confident and not ashamed. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is righteous is born of him. And then unfortunately, in our text, we move from one chapter to another, and there is the uh, division of a number three. But if you open your Bibles to 1 John chapter three, you'll note that this is just a continuation of his discussion of Christ coming again and the fact that we've been born of him. So he says in verse one, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And that's exactly what we are. 
You know, there are different English translations, and sometimes uh, translations capture the original meaning maybe better than another. The NIV uses the word see. I've used, used the word behold, which is in some of the older translations. But it's a very interesting original Greek word. It's in the plural for emphasis. And it literally means sit up and take notice. Did you ever have a teacher that used to say to you, sit up, listen. <laughs> and that's what the Spirit is saying to us. Sit up, take notice. What I'm about to say is really important. Now, all the Bible's important. But sometimes portions of it to us in our heart in the day in which we live are really important. And this is really important. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed or lavished on us. What manner of love is another interesting word. I just have to share with you that in the classical Greek, it meant what country you're from or an out-of-this-world type of person, language, experience. In other words, this is not normal on planet Earth. What manner of love, what unbelievable, out-of-this-world, unique Love, God has not just given, but lavished on us. Alfred Plummer, the Greek scholar, says whenever this word is used, it is designed to create astonishment. And what we sometimes miss in reading the Bible is how astounded the authors are when they're writing the message that God gives them. John, I, I, you could imagine John now in tears and unable to speak and put pens down, pen down and lifts up his hands and prays and then says, oh, what manner of love you've lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. Isn't that a great title? We are called God's children. We weren't born that way. But if anyone receives him, to them he gives the right or authority to be called the children of God. John chapter 1, verse 12, even to those who believe in his name. And then there's this final phrase, and that is exactly what we are. <laughs> That's it. That captures it. That's who we are. I want to take a moment as we look at the first three verses of 1 John chapter 3 to get a better understanding of who we are. Uh, verse 1, this is what we are. It's speaking to the doctrine of justification. If you were to put a tag on this statement of we are the children of God, you would say this is the doctrine of justification where we are declared righteous in the eyes of God. We're God's children transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It's present tense merely to emphasize the fact that this is our ongoing situation. It's more than a title. It's a fact. We are the children of God. Sometimes 
in royalty, the kids who are brought up have such a hard time just being kids because they're often told, remember who you are. That's been a unique problem with pastor's kids coming into a church. Now, you just can't do what everyone else does. Remember who you are. And unfortunately, that leads to some uh, difficult upbringing and some challenges that those kids face. But all of us need to understand exactly who we are. We're living in a time where people have a problem with their own understanding of their identity, wanting to change identities. Many people think too highly of themselves. Many people think too lowly of themselves. On the one hand, there's arrogance. On the other hand, there's depression and insecurity. And it's because we don't know who we are. We don't know who we belong to. But I'm here to tell you today that if you've ever put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. And don't ever forget it. It is one of the most life-changing concepts that you can keep in your heart and mind that will so affect the, what you say and do and where you go if you understand you are a child of God and that great privilege. The Father calls us his children. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, the Father says to us, I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me. He loves that relationship. And in Romans chapter 8, it's the Holy Spirit who speaks deep down into our hearts and tells us that we are really God's children. And because we are God's children, there's a sense of dignity. We're not servants. We're not merely friends. We're children. There is no title more undeserving of than this, and no title we should be more delighted in than this. I am a child of God. From sin and shame to rescue me, O oh love divine, how can it be that a sinner like me could be saved by grace and become a child of God? By nature, man is the creature of God because God is creator, but by grace, we become a child of God. And in this new position, in a relationship of love, not that he just revealed love to us, but he showers it upon us, he lavishes his love upon us so that we bask in this ocean of the love of God. And when we sin, we go and confess and there's forgiveness and acceptance and back into the love of God. And when you're separated from that love, there's nothing but fear. The little child with his parents in the Kresge's drugstore years ago who turned around and noticed they were gone and let out a scream that shocked everyone in the store. And with tears and panic began to run up and down those aisles until I found my mom. 
and grabbed her with everything I had because she knew me and she loved me. And the store is a scary place to be without your parents' love. Now, we're children of God, but that's not all we are right now. We are strangers to men. The Bible tells us the reason the world does not know us is because it did not know him. They didn't understand who Jesus was. John did. He said the word of God, which he called equal with God in John 1.1, 1, 1, the, word of, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. It was the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John goes on to describe in his gospel that Jesus is none other than God in human form. But the world didn't know that. Well, they wouldn't have persecuted him. They wouldn't have crucified him. The world has a tendency to hate him. They extract partially from his biography his good deeds, but they don't want to emphasize his rich teaching truth. In fact, if you go a little further in this chapter, chapter 3, verse 13, don't be surprised, children, if the world hates you. Why? Because you're different. You've received a different kind of love that they cannot comprehend and experience. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. <laughs> if you belong to the world, it would love you because you would be part of its own. But as it is, you don't belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world, and that's why the world hates you. So we live in a world of warring families. Think of the, of the Hatfields and McCoys. Or think of the Godfather, Corleone family against all the other mob families. The devil is the Godfather of this world. And his family hates yours. And that's what makes things so interesting. Now, because of common grace, sometimes the person who doesn't know Christ is gracious and kind, even though internally not favorable to what we say and believe. It's because we're strangers to the people of this world. It's just weird. And I think once you understand that, then it, it takes away some of the personal offense when you share the good news of Christ and they reject it. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting him. So what we are, children of God and strangers to men, but we're justified by the grace of God so as to have this unique and wonderful title. Notice verse 2. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. It's not something that's going to happen. It's something that has happened. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Let's say that this describes what we shall be. So we know what we are, we're the children of God, and now what we shall be is described in verse 2. This deals with the doctrine of glorification. 
This is looking into the future. This is that time in which in the presence of God we are made perfect. And notice in this verse there's an aspect of the unknown and there's an aspect of the known. So what we shall be, we can say, to a great degree, is unknown. It's mysterious. It's beyond our comprehension. You know, there's a lot of mystery in living the Christian life. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things of God belong to him, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever so that we might follow his law. Unknown. There's a bit of apostolic ambiguity in this verse. Even the, the apostle could say, I don't know what it's going to be like. There's this sense that we live in life without having all the answers. And if you're a Christian that wants all the answers, I'm sorry, you're not going to get that till glory. The things revealed to us are ours, but the things kept back from us belong to God. So what we shall be is unknown to a large degree. But then there is something known, verse 2. It says, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's this sense of recognition. When he comes, we'll see him. And when we see him, we'll know him. So now the unknown mysterious turns into the known miraculous. For in a moment, we shall be changed. In the twinkling of an eye, it says in the passage that Pastor Doug read a moment ago. You know, sometimes in business, you're not in the hierarchy of leadership. And you're working for a company, and they'll, they'll say something like this. You ask a question, and they say, you are on a need-to-know basis. <laughs> Isn't that a bit demeaning? I want to know everything. But you're on a need-to-know basis. If you need to know, I'll tell you. And I'll tell you when you need to know. Did you know... That's exactly what our Lord says to us so often. Trust me. You're on a need-to-know basis. I've given you all you need to know right here. Now the particulars you need to trust me for. And at the appropriate time, I'll reveal them to you. I had an experience this week praying for something for two years. And boom. God just miraculously answers the prayer in an amazing way. In that two-year journey, my faith was like this. Sometimes bottomed out, crawled up again, peaked down again. But God was faithful. You're on a need-to-know basis, and now you need to know, this is what I plan to do. God wants us to learn to trust him in the midst of the trials that we face in this life. We can't understand everything, so we have to embrace him in the mysterious and recognize that he has a great plan for us. And here's the plan. When you see Jesus, you will be like Jesus. 
because you'll see him like you've never seen him before. Romans chapter, chapter 8 says that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose because the ones that God has foreknown, he has predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Now that word predestined there is used of a believer. Every believer has been predestined to be made like Jesus. And God is not going to let go until you are like Christ. And when you die and leave this world, you'll be like Christ. And that's what we need to know. When we see him, we shall be like him. Michelangelo used to say, in every block of stone I see an angel waiting to be liberated. And God says, in every human being I've made, I see a saint waiting to be conformed, liberated from this world and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So, are you sitting up and taking notice? Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And that's exactly who we are. This is what we are. And this is what we shall be. Justification, glorification. But in between that, look at verse 3. There's something called sanctification. All who have this hope in Christ purify themselves just as he is pure. This is what we should be. So we know who we are and we know what we shall be, but in the meantime, this is what we need to strive for. This is what we should be. We should be people of hope. We should be people who live with trust. Sanctification is merely that descriptive term theologically for the time between when we believe and we're made perfect in Christ positionally until we see Christ and we're made perfect in Christ practically and wholly. In the meantime, there is this growth process called sanctification. And so what we should be is people of hope. All who have this hope that Christ is coming again, when they see him, they'll be like him. Those people are going to live the right lives. When you think about hope, what do you think of? Well, I hope the Lions win this week. That, my friend, could very well be a false hope. I made the mistake of getting emotionally involved last Sunday. And I paid for it. I'm now distancing myself from them for the rest of the season. My hope is only as good as the object in which I place it, right? So I sit down on a weak chair that cannot hold my weight, and it breaks. Even though I put my hope in that chair, it wasn't strong enough to hold me. But if I put my hope in Jesus Christ, I shall never, get this, I shall never be ashamed. Why? 1 Thessalonians 2.16, the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God the Father, they have given to us by 
grace, eternal encouragement, and a good hope. Hope is a gift from God. And you should pray for that gift every day. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given to us the new birth, which results in a living hope. So the hope that comes from God as a gift is alive. It's dynamic. It's growing and developing. And then Romans 15 says, may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you might overflow with hope by the Holy Spirit. Now you may not have caught it, but in those three verses I just quoted, one from 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 Peter chapter 1, and then finally Romans 15, the Trinity was mentioned. Hope comes from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Hope is a gift from God. Hope is alive and growing. And when we believe, hope overflows in our hearts. We should be people of hope. Because Jesus is coming again. And soon we'll be just like him. Now he said, continue in him. This is the end of chapter 2. Continue in him so that when he appears will be confident and not ashamed at his coming. I can remember some times when I was ashamed when dad was coming home at five o'clock from working at GMC all day long and I was ashamed to see him. But my mother said that I had an appointment with him. Something like this, wait till your father gets home. And I was ashamed. Can't even remember what it was. It happened so many times. There are so many reasons. I can't remember them all. But I remember the feeling of shame. But if we continue in Christ, there'll be a confidence, a peace, an assurance. There'll be no shame. The wonderful expectation of his coming drives our hearts. We can't wait until we see him. And it fills us with hope and joy. We should be people of holiness. Our hope is not merely theological. It's not a position. It's not merely a proposition. It's not part of our creed alone, although it is all of those things. It is ethical. The coming, second coming of Christ is to change the way you live. And Jesus could come at any time. I love the clock in Strasbourg, Germany. One of those town clocks like you see in small towns, big clock. And around the face of the clock are these words. At one of these hours, Jesus will come. Isn't that a good reminder? I've always wanted one of those out in, uh, just in front of our main entrance. That's a request. <laughs> wouldn't that be cool every time you walk into this at one of these hours Jesus will come it's true I don't know when but I know he's coming and I need to be prepared 
Warren Worsby said, the unbeliever who sins is a creature sinning against his creator. A Christian, however, who sins is a child sinning against their father. The unbeliever sins against the law. The believer sins against love. And we are to be people who are godlike. When you're born of parents, you resemble them. When you're born of God, you should be God-like or godly. That's the goal. So there's a revelation here, what we are. There's an expectation, what we shall be. And there is this motivation of what we should be. Because Jesus is coming again, all because of this amazing love that God has showered upon us. Remember who you are. Don't forget your Father. And that you're connected with Him forever. Catherine Benoit had a familiar feeling that is in the hearts of many adults who were adopted as children and have no idea who their biological parents are. She felt a personal disconnect. She didn't really know who she was. She grew up in Quebec, Canada, had loving parents, great siblings, but she was curious about who her real parents were. Thankfully, her parents were supportive about her journey to try to discover her parents, and her adopted parents had the original birth certificate, which is quite rare. They pulled it out, and the father's name, unknown. But the mother's full name was given. At age 19, Catherine began to search for her real mother. She found maternal grandparents, was able to call them, had them on the phone. They acknowledged everything she said, but they offered no information and then they said to Catherine, your mother does not want to know you and hung up. The rejection, again, deeply wounded, hurt and discouraged, devastated. She thought to herself, I could never be as cold as my mother is, but I'm the product of two people. I need to find my dad. Perhaps he has the qualities of forgiveness and kindness. I need to find where this caring side of me comes from. I need to find out who my dad is and what kind of person he is. And she kept searching for 33 years. Finally, her search brought her into the era of DNA testing. And through a site, she sent in her DNA. And quickly, two months later, a match came back which led her to a relative, which led her to Casey Vandenberg, 82, retired and living in Florida. He was initially skeptical that he had a daughter, and then he remembered a girlfriend he had 50 years ago. She had never told Casey anything about the pregnancy. So he wrote an email to Catherine, and at the end he signed it, I love you, your dad. My heart was touched, she said. I felt like I had come full circle. Immediately when they met, there was a bond between them as they tearfully fell into each other's arms. They spent them as much time together as they could. Casey's family warmly welcomed Catherine and her family into their circle. We enjoy each other. 
Not many people get a happy ending like this, Catherine said. And then she said something very perceptive. I feel like that my dad has given me a gift. I am elated to know who I really am. Your father is not lost. You are. And we've been out of touch with our creator, Father, for a long time. And when by grace we're brought back into his family, it's a tearful, joyful reunion. And we begin to know who our Father is. And then we have a sense of who we really are. We're children of God, bound on a destiny to be made like Christ. And until that comes, Let's live like the children of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there may be some people here today who don't know Christ, and so I pray that they will turn to you. As Anthony shared in his testimony when he realized that he needed you and he was born again by trusting in you, Lord, I thank you that you are a gracious, loving God. You don't reject us when we call out. You receive us. Accept us. Let us know that you've loved us all along, even though we didn't know about it. And now you want to make us your children and to develop us with your character. Oh, Lord, I pray that some people will trust you today as Savior and others will cry out to you as Lord and say, make me more like Jesus this day because I know who I am. In your name, amen.